Uh, but beyond all that, we are building a model. The meaning of the model is to show, the reason for the model is to show the world that higher education can be accessible, affordable with the right quality. And if we indeed can make higher education accessible and affordable to all with the right quality, that is revolution. That is something that the world needs. and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You. I have been so looking forward to today's conversation with educational entrepreneur and change maker, Shai Reshup. Shai has been in the news a lot lately as founder and president of University of the People, the world's first nonprofit tuition-free American accredited online university. Shai has given wings to his own deeply held belief in the importance of opening access to higher education. We will include Shai's full bio in the show notes, but for now, I am eager to jump into this conversation. And so Shai, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Now you're described in the media <laughs> as an educational entrepreneur and given your background, you could have turned your talents to any number of industries. Why the interest in education specifically? So this is a good question. I was in for-profit education for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And it, it was actually a business that I joined. And, but while doing it, I realized how powerful online learning can be how powerful online learning can be and education in, in general, because, you know, we had those for-profit for company with tens of thousands of students with hundreds of programs. And we saw how we actually help students to change their life. Then, as I mentioned, we started online uh, university. We were the first online university in Europe, which for me was amazing revelation wow you know you can teach people who stay let's say in Singapore with their family keep their job and still get European education so on the one hand it was great but on the other hand it was a, a feeling of, of that something is missing because for most people it was nothing but a wishful thinking it was too expensive so I, uh, I ended up selling that university. As I said, mentioned, it was for profit and I sold the rest of my business. And I got into so-called semi-retirement just to realize <laughs> that it's not really for me. I'm too active. I want to continue doing. Uh, but it was clear to me, one, that I want to do it in a way uh, that will have an impact on the world. That's my personality. But second, that if I want to have an impact on the world, no doubt it must be through education. Because if you educate one person, you can change a life. When you educate many, you can change the world. So I looked around and I saw that everything that uh, made this European university so expensive is available for free. Open source technology, open educational resources, and the new phenomena that I just discovered of social networking where people were willing to help each other to share and learn from each other for free. 
So I told myself, wait a second, all I have to do is to put everything together and create tuition for university. So I did, and that's University of the People. And the rest is history. So now exactly. in, your, in your strategic plan, you describe University of the People as the education revolution. And you've begun to say a little bit about what that means, but I'd like to hear more about how that is actually lived out. So, you know, the University of the People is a nonprofit, tuition-free, accredited American online university that is opening the gates of higher education to every qualified student that cannot afford it otherwise, either because they don't have the money, either because they live in places where there aren't enough universities, like Africa, uh, either because there are uh, women who deprive for higher education for uh, cultural reasons, um, people who are deprived for political reasons, and maybe they are undocumented in the US, and maybe they are refugees all over the world. And we believe that uh, there wasn't a better reason for the invention of the internet than bringing education, education to them. Uh, but beyond all that, we are building a model. The meaning of the model is to show, the reason for the model is to show the world that higher education can be accessible, affordable with the right quality. And if we indeed can make higher education accessible and affordable to all with the right quality, that is revolution. That is something that the world needs because UNESCO stated that in 2025, it's right around the corner, there will be 100 million students without seats in the then available universities. So actually to be accurate, 98 million students who will deprive from higher education simply because there aren't enough seats. But online, I mean, nobody needs to sit in the back of the, of the lecture hall, there are room for everyone. So we should use the internet to bring education for them. And from that perspective, we believe that uh, what we're doing is, is showing uh, the world that they can use, they can replicate what, what we do or do something similar to solve the challenge that the world of higher education have these days. Mm. Tell us about your students. How many do you currently have? Where do they come from? And why might they choose you other than other than the obvious but what are what are some of the reasons why they might decide to study with you so right now we have 106,000 students over 100,000 students mm -hmm. that are coming from 200 uh, countries and territories so literally mm -hmm. from every corner of the world uh, the biggest country is the US the second uh, largest country is uh, Nigeria, um, and then, you know, it goes for many, many countries. Actually, Syria is our third largest country. And the reason for that is that we have a special initiative uh, for Syrian refugees. Moreover, because so many, well, it started by 125,000 Syrian applying for the university but couldn't make it because of the language, because we taught only in English. So we decided to develop a, a program in Arabic for them. So today mm -hmm. there is a University of the People in Arabic and we have over 8,000 Syrian refugees studying with us, mostly in Arabic, but also 
also in English. So the students are coming from all over the world. They come to us, I would say that the, the majority of them coming to us because they have no other alternative. Yeah. Uh, people who either you know, cannot afford the local universities or they are deprived. You know, I, I, I mentioned Africa before. Take Nigeria as an example, and this is our second largest country. Every year, there are 10 and a half million students who graduate high school. One and a half million out of them pass the university entrance exams. But there are seats available for half a million, which means that one million qualified students cannot get into the universities simply because there aren't seats for them. So for, the, for them, we are the only alternative. If you're, um, if you're a refugee, most likely, you know, I, I, I mentioned that we have, we have refugees. Actually, we have overall, not only Syrian, uh, around um, 10,500 uh, refugees. This is more than any university in the world. I think that it's more than all the universities in the world combined. <laughs> And but refugees are not welcome to, to universities. You know, universities that take a refugee are so proud of themselves. We took a refugee, but you know, there are so many of them. So all these people, we are the only alternative for them, and we are the only alternative because we are tuition free. But it doesn't mean that we are free. We ask the students to pay 120 US dollars for every end of course exam. But we ask them to do so only if they can. If they cannot, we offer them scholarships. So nobody's being left behind for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. There are other reasons. The other reasons is uh, people who uh, graduate and, and actually the COVID was, was the COVID is intensified this, this phenomenon of people who graduate school when they were young, graduate high school, they didn't go to university and start working, but then they reach the glass ceiling and they feel that they must have education in order to move on. But at that time, they have families, they work, so they need the flexibility. We offer them the flexibility. They can stand anytime, anywhere. And by the way, we also make ourselves available for those who don't even have broadband so they can only use text in order to study with us. So we, are, we, we give them the flexibility. Uh, we give them um, academic quality. Uh, they see who is behind the university. They see the partnership that we have with other universities where our students can move on. And all these people feel like, you know, we are a great uh, opportunity for them and they come to us. Tell me more about the learning experience. How was the curriculum designed? How is it designed? Who are the professors? And how is the learning experience different from what a student might find on a, a, another college or university campus? So to start from the beginning, when we decide on a, on a well, first on a, on a program and then on a course, the dean with uh, his, her advisory advisory board uh, decide what will be the learning outcome of, of the course. After that, we take a subject matter expert to develop the course together with one of our instructional designers. Mm -hmm. And they actually need to build a course that will bring the students to the right learning outcome, but also according to our pedagogy. 
And our pedagogy is that uh, every, every course is eight weeks long. Every week starts on Thursday, ends on, on uh, Wednesday. Every week when the students go into the class, they find the lecture notes of the week, the reading assignment of the week, uh, the homework assignment and the discussion question. And the discussion question is the core of our pedagogy. So after the students read everything, they start discussing the topic of the week uh, among themselves. Every student must have at least a original contribution to the class discussion. Mm -hmm. Every week, every student must have at least times, must comment on what other people say. So all week long, it's a discussion between the students. Under the supervision of the instructor, every class is 20 to 30 students. Every 20 to 30 students, that by the way are from 20 to 30 different countries, um, they have their instructor who goes into the week daily and comment on, on uh, what they say, answer questions, redirect the discussion, uh, you know, uh, correct mistakes. So our pedagogy is peer-to-peer -peer learning and it's very intense. Every student needs to spend 15 to 20 hours a, a week per course, which is when you think about it, it's quite a lot. And by the end of each week, they hand in their they take a quiz to see that they master the material. They hand in their homework and they get grades for their quiz, for their homework, for their contribution to the class discussion. And they go to the next week, eight weeks in a row. The ninth week, they take a final exam, which is proctored by a live proctor. Mm. And they get a grade for uh, the entire course and move on. Uh, it's very demanding, uh, very intense. A lot of students find it too hard for them, but those who make it love it. Who do you, uh, who are your professors, your faculty? Where do they come from? So they're volunteers. Uh, the oh. university, we are tuition free. And as I mentioned, uh, we charge um, exam fees of $120, which makes a full BA $4,800 for those who can afford it. And our ability to be tuition free uh, and to be sustainable with this amount is because uh, we ha use heavily uh, technology. We operate without buildings, but also because of volunteers. So I'm a volunteer. The provost is a volunteer. The, the vice provost is volunteers. The deans are volunteers. And so are the instructors. So our faculty are people who come to us uh, from all ranks of universities. The overwhelming majorities are from the US and they give us their time, their expertise in order to make, uh, to make our dream come true. So uh, usually they stay with us for a long, long time. They never leave because it's amazing experience being with us. And they are the people who make uh, our university a reality. That's remarkable. I, I think that <laughs> when I first read that, I, I thought that can't possibly be true. But um, that's, uh, it, it says a lot, obviously, about what's happening. Uh, and the, the power of your mission to draw and to hold people. Well, um, and it says also a lot, and for me, even more important of how much goodwill there is mm -hmm. out there. How many 
people are willing to give from their time and their and their expertise to help other people. So yeah, I agree with mm. you. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. So I understand that students pay what they can afford to pay, but how how do you make it all work out at the end of the day? Do you also, do you do a lot of fundraising? Do you, um, are there other sources of revenue so, that you have to draw, draw from? I wanted to answer, but sure, I wish to have other sources. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. But we are, as I mentioned, we have um, over 100,000 students and our budget is $19 million. Mm. Uh, and we are financially sustainable with this amount. Finan the operation is sustainable, meaning that we don't need any additional money to run to run the program. Uh, we do raise uh, raise donations. About one third of our uh, revenues are from donations, so it's a significant number. But the donations are being used for scholarships. We wouldn't have been able to offer scholarship without donations. And they are used to um, develop new programs or new initiatives, such as the Arabic. If we didn't have the money, uh, we wouldn't have been able to develop it. And to special projects or uh, building our future. So now we started thinking about building our endowment. So all this money is extra and it's not coming from our, from, from our uh, operation. But as I said, we run on a budget of $19 million. Uh, we, uh, but also, I mean, you know, as I said, volunteers are a, a part of our ability to be sustainable, but I think that our mode of operation is extremely, extremely lean, mm -hmm. which means that we give the students what they need, but nothing but they what they need. So, mm -hmm. so for example, you know, we don't have a football team. But we also don't have psychiatric help to our students. Now, I think that both of them are important for the students' experience. And 
but one of them, such as psychiatric help, you can, you can say that it's extremely important, but we cannot afford it. So we can't give everything that, that the students need, uh, but uh, that the students would like to have in order to enrich their experience, but we give them everything they need in order to succeed academically. We have uh, obviously the instructors, we have uh, program advisors that help them with any need that they have. So we build a structure where we try to give the students as much as we can, leaning heavily on technology, and uh, we are quite happy with the with the outcome of, of our program. Yeah. As you should be, indeed. <laughs> now you founded University of the People in 2009, I believe, and received accreditation in 2014. So I'm curious to what extent your original vision for the institution has been realized, if there are things you have not yet accomplished and also, maybe to what extent have you had to pivot from your original vision, if at all? First of all, I mentioned I mentioned before about the volunteers. When I started the university, I thought that it would be based on volunteers, but I, I couldn't imagine how much goodwill are there. You know, it's interesting because I announced the university in, in a conference in Munich, Germany. Mm -hmm. And the next day, the New York Times wrote a page about it. And the following day, literally the following day, I had hundreds of emails from professors who said, this is an amazing idea, I want to help. You know, it's like, wow, and they build a university when you think about it. <laughs> uh, so from, from this perspective, it was, it was great. Uh, I think that one of the things that uh, is uh, harder than I expected is spreading the word. Mm. Now, you know, we have a lot of people know about us, but still, the overwhelming majority of the people in the world, and especially the people who know, who, who need us, haven't heard about us. Mm. So spreading the word uh, is, is a big challenge and was a challenge, has been a challenge and, and still is a challenge to, to, um, to continue. And so is fundraising. So I can't complain because we, you know, we raise the money and uh, we're doing great and we are able to offer scholarships but again if more people knew about us and if we had more money we could have uh, grow even wider so i think this is the the things that that were different from what i expected but also when even academically when we started um i'll give you two things that we change our original thought we said let's open the gates to everyone anyone who wants is welcome why not then we realize, then we bring in people that cannot make it simply because English is not their language. And they sit in the class and they just, you know, and since our pedagogy is peer-to-peer -peer learning from day one, they cannot be part of the, of the discussion. So we decided to enhance and to ensure that our students have uh, the proficiency in English before they let in. But then we also realized, took us a few more years, that even if people know English, it still doesn't mean that they meet uh, our, our standards. So we decided on a new path for admission where we ask every student to take two courses uh, before they are being admitted, admitted as degree-seeking students. 
And the idea is that we tell them take one course, which is general course, online strategies, where we teach them the, the pedagogy and how it is studying online and what to expect. And the second one is a, a course in their field of choice. And we only offer business administration, computer science, health science, and education. So take one general course and one in, uh, in your field of choice and experience what we are. We lose a lot of students there. We lose over 50% of the students in these two courses, either because, oh, it's tuition free. I'll send my high school diploma and I'll get the mail by, I'll get the degree by mail. It doesn't work this way. We tell them, listen, you should expect 15 to 20 hours per week. And the human nature is, well, that's true for someone else. I can make it in an hour a week. Well, one hour goes by and you are gone because you need to spend 20 hours. They miss expectations. Maybe they don't like the peer-to-peer -peer learning. So it's for them to see whom we are and for us to see that they meet our standards. If you can pass these two courses, you're good enough to continue with us. If not, no worry, no problem. Many of them don't even pay for the exams, right? They leave us after a week, which is okay. So they come, try and leave. But for us, it was extremely important because that was our way to ensure that on the one hand, we opened the door as wide as possible. On the other hand, we are ensuring that those who continue with us have the right academic standards because otherwise we didn't do any good for them. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's certainly, I, I can certainly understand um, how that was necessary and has been helpful. Uh, you have an impressive and elite group of partners that support your work with whom you collaborate, including several other academic institutions such as NYU, Harvard Business School Online, and McGill. How do these partnerships work and why are they important for you? First of all, there are different types of partnership. So the two, I'll give two examples which basically cover them all. Harvard Business School Online enable our students to take, to, to take three of their courses at a, at a price that is similar to ours, Harvard Business School Online course at a price of your people courses. And, and when they complete the courses, obviously they come back to us and get credit for these courses, but also they get certificate for the job market, oh. which is amazing for our students. They graduate with a few Harvard courses and with a certificate, Harvard certificate for the job market. So we feel that it's an amazing opportunity for our students. Um, McGill, the other example, our associate degree graduates, after they complete their degrees, assuming they meet a McGill standard, they move on campus to McGill and complete the BA there. Again, for me, our students graduating with me is not the goal. The goal is to help them to have a better life. And if I can move them up the ladder to go to McGill or to go to NYU, wow, I've done my job. So being a funnel to these amazing universities is as good as I can hope. So giving our students opportunity to go to amazing places, this is all what we are about. And it's a win-win because, you know, universities today want the diversity that we, that we offer. Whether it is McGill that want, you know, and they are mainly want to open the gates to refugees from around the world, 
or Harvard Business, uh, Business School Online that want to, to spread the word about Harvard Business School to the diverse community, to the black community in the US. And we are a great way because our students is as diverse. We are, you know, 30% of our US students are black. So we are very diverse by nature and uh, it's, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, I, I mean, it's clearly so many people are writing and talking about this, the future of higher ed uh, with collaboration and partnerships and what you're doing is a great example of, of how to think about that. So now, while you began uh, with a very limited number of academic programs, you have since expanded to include master's degree programs, I believe. So what are, what are your plans for additional program development and scaling? I have to admit that we are not sure oh. because one of the reasons that we, that we are, a, that we can be tuition free or having operating on such a limited budget is because we are focused and we do only what we do best and we don't spread thin. Um, so from that perspective, uh, the four degrees that we have are the, the four programs that we have are the programs. We started with business administration and computer science because they are the degrees that are most in demand worldwide and are most likely to help our students to find, you know, to, to get a better future. Um, when we thought about it at the very beginning, we were thinking about teaching and health science professions. We thought that we would start with those two. And we haven't because um, health science, well, you need <laughs> practical experience. I'm sure that not many people would be willing to be operated by a doctor that only operated <laughs> on the computer. So, you know, so only when the idea of health science came about, meaning that we can uh, actually train uh, public health employees, which are in great demand worldwide, and especially now in the COVID days, but even before that in some countries really need them, uh, we, we decided to go there. So it's not practical. It's not, you know, it's, we teach the theory. And education, again, our inability was that no, no uh, country will let teachers go into the school unless they license them and they train them. And in many cases, indoctrinate them. And we said, we are, you know, how can we do it? We can't work on, 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 a, on licensing in 50 states in the US and definitely not in 200 countries. But then the IB, the International Baccalaureate, um, approach us and, and ask if we're willing to develop master in uh, education that will be for licensed teachers. And we said, wow, that's amazing because we can upgrade the level of teachers and offer them um, and offer them a master. And that's why we launched we launch that program. So we feel that these are the programs that are most important. And now, we might uh, go broader with our degree, with our uh, offering, but we'll see, we have to see. We are not rushing, let's put it this way. Yeah, yeah, okay, so I can't, I can't get anything more <laughs> on that, but I, I was curious uh, if you had any, 
any new ideas, which you probably do um, that, you're, that you're thinking through. So now we have a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on the podcast. And that is this, as you look to the future, what do you think needs to be on the radar for all college and university leaders? I think that the, the world of higher education is changing. Uh, I think that uh, COVID intensified this change. Uh, I think, well, from two perspectives. First of all, online became mainstream. All the time we were on the margin. We were not the real thing. Now we are the real thing. Everyone tries to imitate, to replicate what we do because online became became legitimate and 75% of the students say now that they will continue studying online in the future, fully or partially, but online became a, a legitimate and, main, and as I said, mainstream. Second, the cost of higher education, especially in the US, and I would argue that everywhere else, become insane. It become to the point that it can't be sustainable. And it doesn't matter if the students pay for it, well, it very matter if American students cannot afford it, but I think that governments start cutting a higher education budget in most countries because it's, it's extremely expensive. And I'm saying that the combination of, um, the combination of uh, online being legitimate and the cost of higher education become heavy burden um, means that higher education leaders should look at different model in the future. And my argument would be that uh, they should integrate online into their main uh, um, teaching methods and they should move to be partially online and partially on campus and cut the cost accordingly. So I would argue that American universities should move into two years of online two years offline, and it doesn't matter if the first year online, the second year, or the first two years, the first last year, so combination, but, and give the, these online years tuition free. By then, you save the cost of the students by half. So if they only pay for two years instead of four years, this is unbelievable saving for students. And for the universities, I'm saying, if you are selective, double the number of your students. So instead of teaching 50, 10,000 students for four years, teach 20,000 students for two years. In terms of revenues, it's the same revenues, just spread differently. And the only difference will be the cost of teaching online because all the rest will be the same. And I think that I'm one of the, few people that can show that online is not that costly, right? <laughs> so I think that all universities can do that and they should do that. The challenge will be for the universities that are not selective, they cannot double their numbers. Well, the bad news for these universities is that they should merge with other universities because otherwise they won't be there. And it's not because I'm saying that, it's because that's where the world is heading. and. I think that universities should look at what they're doing, should look at how they're going to be more efficient, how to change their model. I think that holding to the existing model 
you know, it's like uh, holding to any industry that, uh, like in any industry that refused to, to look at the change that is coming and say that good old days will be there forever. They will not, and we should face it, and the sooner the better. Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chellup, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash Chellup for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher ed webinar series. In next week's episode, I speak with the very wise, creative and inspiring higher education leader, Dr. Daisy Coco de Filippi, recently appointed as president at Hostess Community College in the Bronx, following a remarkably successful 12-year tenure as president of Naugatuck Valley Community College in Waterbury, Connecticut. She is the first person born in the Dominican Republic to serve as president of a college of the City University of New York. Daisy is recognized internationally as a pioneering scholar who has built a reputation for her studies of Dominican women and has received numerous awards and honors for her scholarship. If that were not enough, she is also a wife, mother, grandmother, and a good friend and mentor to many across higher education. During our conversation, Daisy shares many of the courageous actions she has taken on behalf of students, as well as what it's like to be on the receiving end of one of those unsolicited phone calls and gifts from the philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well. Thank you.